It's wonderful to be with you. If you do have your Bible, we'll be looking at lots of different passages as well as that one in James. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters here at St. James's by the Park, those who are at home watching. I don't know this church. I don't know its people or its stories, but you do. So I pray now, Lord, that as we come to your word, you might speak to each one of us. You might take away any misunderstanding You might take away anything from me that isn't from you, and you might shape us to be a people who are your very own, eager to do what is good and to live in the light of your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Our topic, as Dan has said, is to respond to injustice. And sometimes that's a straightforward enough thing to do. There's something wrong, it needs to be put right really need to have a whole sermon about it, actually. Yes, it requires a little bit of thought. It definitely requires willingness. But actually, it's straightforward. But in many other cases, injustice feels pervasive. It feels overwhelmingly big. And it's hard to know how we would even begin. We see how to make a difference can be misunderstood, can be misguided can even do great damage. So what do we do in situations like that? The injustice that flows from racism can be just like that. It feels like we're dealing with attitudes and actions that have shaped our history, that are baked into our culture, and it doesn't seem clear that we'd ever be able to change it. Sometimes even having the conversation can feel so difficult. So I'm really grateful to hear about that preaching series you've had last year and your willingness to keep that conversation going. Because unless we're prepared to speak about these things, listen to what God says and listen to one another, there really will be no way out of the injustice. So how do we respond to injustice? I don't have any quick fixes or easy answers. But as we come to Scripture and hear from the Lord, my prayer is that he will equip each one of us to begin responding to the injustices in our world. As we think perhaps about issues to do with race, my prayer is also that we'll think about other kinds of injustice as well. So whether we've been victims or wrongdoers or bystanders, and I'm sure at various points in different places we have been each of those things, my prayer is that we'll see this morning that God is calling us to something new in Jesus. Can we have the next slide, please? He's calling us to a new kind of hope that changes how we live today. He's calling us into a new kind of community where our differences are a gift to one another, not a threat. And he's calling us into a new kind of conversation in which we flee the wrong kind of anger. So first, he's calling us to a new kind of hope. James chapter 2, verse 1 again. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very quick little phrase, but it actually captures the whole gospel. Because to those who were around to see Jesus of Nazareth, very little appeared to them to be glorious about him. He looked actually a bit like a failure. Someone who said some interesting things, but ended up crushed by the power and glory of the Roman Empire and crucified in a place of shame. Where's the glory in that? But 
to those who can see what God is doing, we know the truth is completely different. We know that Jesus is not just some failed teacher or Messiah, but the Lord. And we see that his death is not ultimately defeat, but ultimate victory. That's how he's dealt with our sin. That's how he's reconciled us to God. That's how he's put death itself to death. And so as the Spirit opens our eyes, we see that's what glory looks like. Glory looks like Jesus. And one day, everyone will see that glory. When Jesus returns, every false understanding of glory will be shown to be completely bankrupt. Put the verse up on the screen, but towards the end of his letter, James 5, we read that we're waiting patiently for the Lord to return. And he's near. The judge is standing at the door. And when he comes, he will banish all injustice. He will come to be the perfect judge, like no human judge could ever be, judging with all the facts, missing no key information, and judging without any bias, not even a little bit. And when he comes to banish injustice, he will also bring complete reconciliation. Here's a verse we've already heard this morning in our liturgy, Revelation 7, 9. Hear it again. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That vision is the key to responding to injustice today. It's only when we know that that is where history is headed that we will find the energy to keep going and struggle against the injustices we see. Here's a really famous quote from Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, You might have heard it before. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's a really inspiring quote. But is it true? Well, outside of Jesus, who knows? Science can't see any moral universes. In fact, all it can see is the heat death of the universe. So what's all this about justice? But you see, Martin Luther King Jr. was a believer in Jesus. And he knew and looked forward to Jesus' return to come to judge. He looked forward to that glorious multitude that multicultural, multilingual, multicolor family of God standing before the throne. And so he knew it was worth it to keep striving for racial reconciliation because that's where history is headed. Because that's what God is going to do, we can seek reconciliation now. Because justice is coming, we, we see that it's worth it to strive against injustice now. And that can even start changing how we feel about our past. History is stained with blood. And perhaps your own personal history, your own family history, is a source of real trauma to you. Maybe it leaves you with burdens you would never have chosen, or with things that other people just don't understand. That is so painful, isn't it? And yet, if we put our trust in Jesus, who was able to take defeat on the cross and turn it to victory, to take the darkness and hatred of that moment and make it life and light, then we can trust God even to take our pain and make it part of the bigger, beautiful story that he's telling. We don't know how that's going to happen. Sometimes it feels like we can't even imagine it. But we don't have to. We know our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, 
And so we can trust that he will, that he will come and banish injustice forever. Now, when we hear that, there is an ugly response we sometimes have. I've certainly had it. Well, look, if if Jesus is going to come again and sort it all out, why bother now? Why try and fix something that only he can resolve in the end? And it's true that only when Jesus returns will all injustice be put away fully and finally. It's true that we're waiting until he comes again for all sin to be emptied out of our hearts and emptied out of our world. But that is not an excuse to live an untransformed life, is it? Just think about this verse from 1 John 3, um, again up on the screen. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All those who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. See what's going on there? There's a future hope. He's coming. We'll see him as he is. But because of that future hope, something changes today. We purify ourselves even as he is pure today. So we seek to live the life of God's kingdom as individuals and as a community, not because we think we can bring it completely, only he can do that, but because it glorifies God, because it's what we're called to do, and because we long to live lives that glorify him. So yes, what we do today matters. The choices we make matter. The the way we spend our money the way we spend our time, the words we say, the relationships we invest in. We're called to bring all of it in line with God's will because of this new kind of hope to which we've been called. Jesus' return doesn't undermine our attempts to seek justice. It establishes their validity, which means it's right to seek justice. And it's not pointless, even if it's not perfect. It's worth doing, even if our efforts feel very fragile and weak because of where history's headed, because we have this new kind of hope. And that leads me to my second point. This new kind of hope creates a new kind of community, which takes me back to James chapter 2, verse 1, that call away from favoritism. Why does God hate favoritism so much? Because he's making a new kind of community where glory is not defined by worldly standards, by how much money you have in the bank or whether you fit in with the wider culture, but where glory is defined by our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we get that, then favoritism should scandalize us. So James says, imagine this. A couple of people come into St. James's by the park. One of them is wearing a gold ring, oops, and dressed in fine clothes, and he gets welcomed. He gets shown to a place of honor. And someone else comes in, and they are much poorer, and everything about them says it. And they're barely welcomed. They're seated in the lowest, most shaming place. If that were to happen at this church, what would that say? It would say that we've gotten glory completely wrong. It would show that something had gone badly wrong. Why? Because, verse 5, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, rich in Jesus Christ. And so if we treat the rich better than the poor, all we've shown is that we don't understand glory and we don't even understand what true riches really are. 
We're called to be a new kind of community, one in which we live out the standard of Jesus' glory. And what that means is we're called to be a place where our differences are a gift to one another, not a threat. See, according to the world, differences are a threat. And welcoming in a poorer person is a threat to the church's credibility. Because if we aren't welcoming the movers and shakers, the up and coming, the young and the beautiful, whoever the world approves of that moment, then why would anyone else want to join us? It's a threat. But James is saying we should be looking at things totally differently. Actually, welcoming in a poorer brother or sister is a gift from Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to have our old understanding of glory turned upside down by Jesus and actually to discover what glory really means, to be corrected, to be rebuked where we need it, and to get closer to Jesus as we welcome them. And of course, that's true about our ethnic differences as well, isn't it? So often, difference in ethnicity feels dangerous. We're so afraid of being hurt again. We're so afraid of causing offense that we keep ourselves in monochrome communities, sometimes monochrome churches. But that's entirely the wrong way around. Our differences are a gift, not a threat. And every time someone brings ethnic difference into our church, we get a flesh and blood signpost of the new creation, where all of us will be gathered together celebrating Jesus and what he's done for us. Not a threat, but a gift. Where might there be differences for us to receive as a gift today? So God is making a new kind of community. And what happens in this community is that together, these differences are welcomed and we strive to live for Jesus. And what that means is, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's calling us to shine for him. In an unjust world, inaction is not an option for the church. We're called to strive, even to persevere in justice. So um, Paul says this in Galatians 6, verse 9. He says, let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. It's a wonderful call there to be a family together. And of course, like any family, there's going to be family tension, perhaps family squabbles, which means that the church can become the place where we learn together how to pursue harmony as we treat one another differently and better. Last year, you had that moment in Act 6 where in response to some structural injustice, the church appointed leaders from the minority background to make a difference. Let me give you another snapshot from Acts. Acts 13, verse 1. And you can see there the kind of leadership of this early church. It's a really beautiful picture. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, my eyes, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Do you see in this little picture, and it is only a little picture, the most amazing diversity in the church. Their leaders reflected the project, the multicultural project that is God's new kind of community. And that should be the same today. Not just our ordained leaders. All of us should be reflecting that diversity in our churches. God is calling us to a new kind of community. One of the things that means is that we can't do this alone. 
I've often belonged to churches where we've encouraged people to act justly and love mercy, but we've basically told people to get on with it as individuals, meaning that it hardly ever happens. We don't do that with anything else that the Lord commands us. We work together when it comes to evangelism and put on outreach events. We support believers through all kinds of ethical distinctives when it comes to following Jesus. Why should it be different here? We can't seek justice healthily just on our own. We need to do it as part of God's new community. And what this new kind of community does is model the healing and reconciliation our world is desperate for, but doesn't know where to find. They should be able to find it here. They should be able to see it by looking at us. God's new kind of community. And finally, because we're in this new kind of community, we're being called to have a new kind of conversation. Uh, This is the most practical thing I have to say for us this morning, and it's about how we speak. And it's true that there are lots of things that we need to do in responding to justice, lots of choices to make, but how we speak is a really important part of that. In James's letter, chapter 3, he'll talk about the danger of toxic speech. And it's true that even if we have good intentions, even if we're trying to make a difference, how we talk can often make a real difference, either for good or for ill. It is possible to be caught up in ways of speaking that mean we can never really challenge injustice and never really respond to it. It's possible to say that you stand for mercy, but speak in a way that is full of harshness and judgment. Can I be honest with you? I think a large part of that is about where we have our conversations. I think for a lot of us, we communicate using social media. And while social media is not evil in every respect, it does have an impact on us. And even if you're not using social media that much, you're still caught up in it. The way conversations happen online changes the way they happen everywhere else. And the thing about social media is, it is so good at rewarding our ugliest impulses. The algorithms that show you what you see are really good at making sure you don't hear the best of a disagreement or someone else's opinion. And it's so good at stirring you up to feel angry. You ever had that? Gone on Facebook or something and gotten angry at what you saw? I think it happens to me nearly every day when I look at it. And here's the thing. When you can't see the other human involved, can't see their body language, can't hear their tone of voice, it is so much easier to speak far more harshly than you ever would in person. Some of us can even be anonymous online and end up saying things that we'd never dream of saying out loud. That has a real impact on our, um, on, on our language and actually on our hearts as well. And it makes us really angry. Here's why that's a problem. James 1 verse 20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. That's where our our reading began. It doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, let me be really clear. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God's anger is righteous. Jesus, in his human anger, never sinned. When he cleared out the temple, and I think there'll be some verses up from Mark, he did that out of a righteous anger, and you'll notice it's because what was meant to be a house of prayer for the nations had become a den of robbers. He knew how to be angry. Paul even says, Ephesians 4, verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. 
So yes, righteous anger does exist. And sometimes the brokenness of our world means that anger is the right response. But James is telling each of us something we need to hear in 2022, which is that much of the time, perhaps most of our time, our anger is not good anger. And it doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. And so when we feel tempted to anger, feel that outrage, what we should do is pray for discernment and ask, Lord, is this the kind of anger that you would really show? Because here's the problem with anger. It doesn't enable us to slow down and take stock and really listen. If you're a driver, you probably know about blind spots in your car. And when you have a blind spot, what you have to do is sort of move your position and look around and check. But when we get angry, we don't do that in our conversations. We don't slow down to think or move our position. If anything, we forget we even have blind spots. And in our anger, we just spiral and we end up treating others in a terrible way. And that's especially a problem when it comes to something like racism, which is evil, when it comes to injustice. We can feel like we're showing righteous anger, but never check our blind spots, never see what's going on. There are at least two problems with that. First, ungodly anger hardly ever allows us to love people who've wronged us, which means it means being out of sync with who God is, because even God's anger flows from his love and led him to the cross where he bought us in his love. Second, I'm not sure that anger really does change things. A lot of activists today, especially those who are anti-racism and have some very good things to say, encourage us to get angry, to feel angry because anger gets stuff done. I'm not sure it does. The thing about anger is that it's really effective at demonizing other people, but it hardly ever changes them. Do you notice that? It's so satisfying for us when we slam people on the internet, but they are hardly ever changed by that experience. Because the truth is, you can probably shame people into being silent, but you can't shame them into righteousness. Not at a heart level. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only when we are speaking words prayerfully and gently directed to these issues can we hope that he might be at work doing that. So we're called to a better conversation. The kind of speech that follows Jesus' example. If you look at 1 Peter 2, again, I think it'll come up on the screen. How did Jesus speak at his moments of facing injustice? We hear, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. That's what his speech was like. And it flowed from entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The next time you're tempted to anger, to respond in kind... May I encourage you to strive for Jesus' example and to speak from that place of trusting God and showing mercy. Now, can I say that's a word to you as individuals? If you see someone else being treated unjustly, you should never say, well, they should be more like Jesus and just take it. You should be more like Jesus and just stop it. If you can intervene like Jesus did at the temple, that would be a wise and good thing to do. But as it concerns you, insofar as it depends on you, in a conversation where you feel like your anger is going to explode, cry out to the Lord to make you more like Jesus so that any anger you show is the right kind of anger. We're called to a better conversation. 
as a church, as a community, and as individuals. So as we finish, perhaps you're here and you're part of a majority culture in this church, perhaps to do with class or race. If that's you, will you take responsibility to listen to your brothers and sisters from a minority culture, to take what they say seriously, and to act on what, they, what you hear? Perhaps you're here and you're part of a minority culture, and maybe you've been terribly wronged in the past. Can I invite you to be part of that better conversation? It is right to feel angry about how you've been treated. But thank God, in Jesus, anger is not your only option. Yes, he calls you to show righteous anger, but also to follow him in showing mercy. Also following him in learning to be gentle. You see, Jesus takes your suffering personally, so you don't have to. Jesus will judge those who've wronged you, so you don't have to. You can follow him in showing grace and mercy, the mercy which triumphs over judgment, we heard at the end of our reading. And that's not an invitation to be trodden on, but rather to walk in the footsteps of your master, which is the way of true victory, which is the way of true glory, knowing that there is grace for every step you take when following his path. You see, when people feed my anger and tell me to get angry, they are not taking me as seriously as Jesus does. They're leaving me trapped in that cycle of anger and outrage from which no one escapes, through which no one is changed. Jesus has something better for us. He's calling us to a new kind of conversation, a different kind of anger, one which strives to show the mercy we have received from him. So as we finish, may I invite you to that better conversation, to escape that cycle of anger and outrage, to refuse to give oxygen to hypocrisy and judgment. And let's pray that as friends, family, and neighbors overhear that new kind of conversation, they would long to be part of this new kind of community God is creating among us, and join us in living in the light of the new kind of hope when Jesus returns. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are glorious, and we ask that by your Spirit you'd work in our hearts to teach us what glory really looks like, and therefore to long for the justice you will bring. Be at work amongst my brothers and sisters here at St. James's by the Park, Work through how they live and act and speak. And I pray, Lord, that anyone who comes to see them, to know them, would get a glimpse of the extraordinary unity you are making in Jesus. I pray this would be a place where differences are not threats but gifts, and there would be great joy in your work amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.